This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I have been reading Sigrid Nunez for quite some time, and I'm so excited to have her on the show. The Vulnerables is her new novel. A lot of folks came to her when The Friend won the National Book Award in 2018, which suddenly seems like a very long time ago. But I remember reading you when I was a little younger and a lot more impressionable. The Feather on the Breath of God was your debut. And wow, that book stuck with me. And so when I'm reading The Friend and I'm reading What Are You Going Through and I'm reading The Vulnerables, I hear a little bit of that narrator in those novels, right? Am I right about that? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, when I finished The Friend, it was all done. And I thought, you know what? I thought this is the same narrator as my first book, A Feather on the Breath of God, older. That's exactly what happened. And then the next two books, because they're very much connected to the you know, because that is also the same narrator. So they are too. But it is interesting that I did not realize that while I was working on it, or it just never occurred to me. I mean, it was a long time ago and all these other books had, you know, been in between, but you're absolutely right. Wow. Okay. I, sometimes, you know, obviously readers bring their own experience to the work. And I did have a moment of, am I stretching? <laughs> am I pushing something here? But I'm actually really glad to hear that because when I read Feather, and for listeners who haven't read Feather yet, um, please go read it. But it opens with the story of your dad, who is Panamanian Chinese. You were raised in New York. And your mother was German. They met when your dad served overseas in the military during World War II. Mm -hmm. And she gets the next section. And then there's the narrator and dance. That's I don't want to spoil anything. I realize the book's been out for a minute, but just go and find this. And then there's sort of, well, a wild love affair with a Russian immigrant. And those are the four pieces of Feather. And yet there's a lot about writing and the writing life and creativity and grief and language. So all of the things that I think of when I think of your work right now, and I will say I'm also very much a fan of The Last of Her Kind, but we may or may not get to that one in this conversation. We might have to have a second conversation for that book. Stylistically, though, there's also a continuity outside of the voice, right? Wouldn't you say? Yes, yes. I mean, the thing is that in the first book, you know that the narrator is an aspiring writer, but she's not really a, a writer. She's teaching ESL, but she's not. she hasn't published anything. She doesn't have an editor or anything of kind, not even articles or short stories. There's certainly no, no book. You know, she is an aspiring writer and she's a reader and she does make certain references to things that she's read and she does quote other writers. And that is something that is done even more heavily in these later books. Waiki Wong, who's a writer you and I both love. And yes. you have the great good fortune to be very close to her as a friend. She has this line that I'm going to lift from a joint interview you two did with T Magazine, where she says, Sigrid has a great presence on the page and this playful, organic way of navigating storytelling. And that's exactly how I think of your work, especially the last three novels. And the vulnerables, there's a parrot. 
the parrot. The parrot. I think we should start with Eureka because I got the galley. I saw the jacket. Great jacket. <laughs> it is a fabulous jacket. But I thought, okay, so we've gone from Apollo, my favorite Harlequin Great Dane, to a couple of different iterations of cats. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And now we have Eureka, who I'm very glad to have met in the pages of a novel, and I'm very glad to not have. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm a bird person. I know I'm a dog person. I'm not sure I'm a bird person. But can we talk about Eureka? Because I think there is a connection to Virginia Woolf, you suggest, in this book. Oh, that that was a very unusual thing that happened. Okay. Years and years ago, a former student of mine, I had been teaching at Smith, and this was after she had graduated, and we were still in touch. And she gave me as a gift this children's book called The Widow and the Parrot by Virginia Woolf. And that had been something that Woolf had written for her nephew's newspaper. And I don't know when it became a a book, long, long after her death, certainly. I completely forgot about it. And I was near the end of the book. And I'm looking at my bookshelves. And you know how thin a book like that is. There's all this wolf there on the same shelf. And then there's that, that, well, what's that? I thought, what's that thin thing? And I pulled it out and they'd, oh my God, I completely forgot about this. And so it just so happens that I gave that memory lapse to my narrator. Right at the point, towards the end, I have the narrator say, I had for- I forgot that Virginia Woolf wrote a book about a parrot. So it's just one of those kind of wonderful coincidences. You know, there are a couple of them towards the end. The fact that then Annie Ernaux writes a book called The Years, you know, which is the thing that I started my book with. And I started The Vulnerables with that because we were living in pandemic lockdown and it was an uncertain spring to say the least. And we kept hearing all the time, nothing is certain, but uncertainty in these times. I mean, that's, we were living with that. And it just came into my head. Wasn't I didn't remember anything else about the years, but I remember, didn't it start with it was an uncertain spring? And I thought, well, a lot of it is is just a strange kind of luck. Uh, th- things just started coming together. I mean, there was also the fact that I had talked about the the Collection Blanc, French Gallimard, and then it and then it turns out that she. You know, she is in that collection. So lots of things of that sort. Anyway. When did you sit down to start The Vulnerables? I mean, you've done 18 was the friend publication. 2020 was what are you going through? And here we are in 23. So you're writing these books at a pretty quick clip. Yeah, I guess there's like two years in between. Yeah, yeah. Well, what happened was, right, and and What Are You Going Through came out in September, the fall after the unusual spring. So what happened was, okay, because, you know, it takes time, right? So so I had handed that book in more than a year before, let's say, or a year before, the fall before. I wasn't working on a book. I had been writing some review essays, and I, I believe I worked on a story, but I, I wasn't ready to start. I didn't have an idea that I wanted, you know, for a new novel. And then, and then the pandemic hit, and and like everyone else, I was stunned and not really able to work. Didn't really particularly want to work. So I was, but I had this review essay. I was writing about Garth Greenwell, whose work I really like, and it was, you know, I, I it was a, a long essay, long review. So I was working on that, but then I stopped because everything has stopped, and I did manage to get back to that. So that's what I was working on, and I'd finished it. 
And then I was teaching at BU. Oh, okay. Yeah, between 2011 and 2021, I was teaching there every fall semester. And being on the faculty, I was part of the annual spring faculty reading. This time it was on Zoom. Mm -hmm. And there are so many people reading that they say, don't read for more than eight minutes. And I thought, okay, I want to write something new for this. Now, to back up a little bit, in 20-whatever-it-was, when we had the BU annual reading, I did the same thing. I started something new, and what that turned out to be eventually was the friend. Ah. You know, I thought, well, it doesn't have to be something complete, eight Mm -hmm. minutes, about four pages. So I started with what would, in fact, turn out to be the first four pages of manuscript of, of the friend. So... Same thing. I thought, let's just start something. And I had the idea with the Virginia Woolf. And I just started writing. And then again, I stopped, you know, because of the situation that we're all in. And I'm not sure exactly how much later it was. But eventually, then I thought, no, no, you've made this beginning. Let's just see where we can go with this. And that did turn out to be the beginning of The Vulnerables. Now, what's going to happen to me now that I'm not teaching at BU anymore? I'll never be able to write another book if we don't have (laughs) You know, I'm not entirely (laughs) sure. I mean, I'm laughing as I was doing the prep for the show. You know, the New York Times headline after you won the National Book Award was kind of like overnight success after eight books and a (laughs) 20-plus year career. (laughs) I think Sigrid will be okay. (laughs) I just... I think she's okay. I mean, I certainly love reading you. The intimacy of the new book, though, does match the friend and and what are you going through. And I do, I love that. I really, I dip right back into your world. You know, yes, it's been a couple of years. I dip right back in and I'm thinking, well, is this the same woman? I always do it. Sorry. It's just a force of habit. But we meet her sort of gaggle of girlfriends. They all have, names that derive from flowers and there she's doing that thing and can I assume that she's a version of you I know in the past you've talked about whether or not your work is autobiographical but I feel like you like keeping that line very blurry well definitely because it's not it's not autofiction which is right. its own kind of genre okay but it is you know there's yeah, much, much autobiography in my work. And mm-hmm. in, in these particular books, it's very clear, at least to me, what it is, is that I have this narrator, I create a narrator who has a lot in common with me. She's around my age. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a woman. She's a writer. She teaches writing. She lives in New York. She loves animals. Okay. So the way I would describe it is that when the narrator is reflecting on something, or having opinions about something, or, you know, just kind of what I call literary thinking, right? That is me. Those are my observations. Those are my reflections. Those are my questions about the world and life. But then there is this other part, which is the storytelling, where things happen, and that's all invented. You know, I didn't have the mentor. I didn't have the 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 great Dane. If uh, if only, <laughs> right? However, when in that book where the narrator starts wondering why she feels the way she does, and then remembers how her last cat died, 
mm-hmm. and how she felt about that, that was not invented. So they really are hybrid books, but there certainly is a lot of me in there. And I don't just mean in the sense that, you know, any book is has a lot of whoever wrote it in them for obvious reasons. You know, I mean that that that, you know, between me and the narrator, as opposed to the plot such as it is, you know, are very, very much identified. And for example, I would never give to one of those narrators any kind of point of view that wasn't also mine. Is that why they stay unnamed? Well, that's that's a very interesting question. I never made any kind of decision right. about whether to have the narrator named or unnamed. But what happened was I would start writing and at some point I would think about having a name for the character and then I would put that name in there and it did well okay with the friend it never came up you know and other people aren't named in there either it's really Apollo is the only character with a name so that kind of worked naturally to never name anybody wife one wife two wife three you know the mentor you with the second book I thought well you know I don't have a rule about not naming so you know, I'm writing, and and there was a character, the 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 ex, the one who gives the lecture at the beginning of the book. I believe I was calling him Richard. Then I'm writing along, and he's being called Richard. And then I was trying to think of a name for the narrator. And as I tried to have these named characters, things got clunky. It didn't feel right. I got a little blocked, and so I got rid of the names, and then went on. And what's so interesting is that I then read read an interview somewhere with Anna Burns who wrote Milkman. Yep. Right? And somebody asked her the question, well, why don't you name your characters? And she said that exact same thing, that she had put names on the character to the characters, she'd given them names, and then she somehow it wasn't coming and she took the names out and she was able to write again. So this time, I can't quite remember what I've, I kind of figured, I think, that I was not going to end up naming the character, the narrator. But then I wanted to use the true fact that a computer once came up with a suggestion for my name as sugared nouns, because that happened a long time ago, and I've right. always wanted to use that. And I thought, well, if you do that, you are basically saying that the narrator's name is sugaredness. I thought, okay, well, so be it. I haven't done that before. I have never called my narrator Sigrid before, but here she is, sugared nouns. It's funny, though, because I don't feel like, and I loved the wife one, wife two, wife three. All of them were their very, um, very distinct personalities, and I really appreciate that about them. But I don't feel like I need names to know where I am. I don't in the story at all. And I mean, I like the the gaggle of friends who all have, you know, there's Violet and Iris and, you know. Lily. And- yeah, Lily. And I mean, I thought that was kind of a clever device that's pulled them together in. A bouquet. Like, yeah, a bouquet, <laughs> yes. In a nifty way, in a, in a nifty bouquet. But I feel like there's a certain level of implied trust that you're saying to the reader you can do this. You can follow me. You don't actually need, you know, the clearest roadmap in the world because, I mean, there is a little bit of dreaminess. Your sentences are very clear and they're very, very fun to read, but there's a little bit of you play with time and markers of time. You play with memory. You play with 
identity. Everything's always kind of in flux. You're doing a lot in very short novels. Well, I guess also with the naming of the narrator and certain characters, I myself have found, I mean, it's it's fairly common now for people to write books where they don't name the narrator or some of the characters. And I've never had any trouble following them. So I, I didn't think it would be a difficult thing. And with the the flower names, the thing is that early on in her ruminations during lockdown about going for walks and seeing all the flowers, it occurs to her, as it has occurred to me, that why is it that all flower names are uh, tend to be beautiful words, some of them so beautiful that they're the kinds of names that people choose for their baby daughters? And I couldn't think of any ugly name. I thought of Snapdragon, which you would never name your little girl Snapdragon. Mm -hmm. And I said, but that would be a good name for a cat. So then when I start talking about these friends, I'm implying that I am a writer and that I'm writing about real people, mm -hmm. which by the way, I'm, I'm not, except, right. in the, except in the sense that these women are like my friends. You know, I'm not basing any one of them on any particular woman, but you know, they are recognizable to me as the things they say, the, their humor above all. I feel like I'm, I'm with my friends, my girlfriends. So I start by saying I could call her Lily or Rose or Violet. Okay, let's call her Lily. And then, you know, every woman that I bring up, I'm giving the name of a flower. It's connected to what happened at the beginning of the book. But the reader understands these are not their real names in that sense. <laughs> so it's kind of a joke, really. Yeah, but you sneak jokes in quite a lot in all of your work. It might not have been a complete joke, but you do have a little riff on The Great Gatsby in The Last of Her Kind. Yes, and I i mean, I meant every word of it. I mean, that, I, I, that, that could have been published as nonfiction. And I didn't just attribute that to my character. Some, some readers have thought I was trying to make her look stupid. The oh, no, that, oh, I was not one of those readers. Oh, no, I was not one of those readers at all. Absolutely, absolutely. That is part of the fun of reading you, though. I mean, there are references to Kutzia and Elizabeth Bishop and, you know, writers that I'm not necessarily reaching for now, but are certainly part of my reading life. And yes. have sort of, yes. you know, you know, Waiting for the Barbarians, still a seminal work. It's been a really long time since I've read Disgrace, but it's like walking through a very smart, wry library, the way you'd sort of send these moments out into the world. And you've always said, you've always been very, very clear about this, that writing to you is, it's a calling, it's a vocation. It is, it's about the sentences and getting it right and doing the revisions and all of that. And I'm wondering though, because you make it look so effortless on the page. Can we talk about process for a second? Because here you are just saying, well, I just threw in some jokes and I'm like, but structurally, it's a little more complex than just saying, I'm going to tell a joke here. And I know you don't work from an outline. So this book, The Vulnerables, <laughs> where? I think, well, you know, I think it's because if it ends up looking like it was easy, it's partly because that, that, that prose is pared down. Okay, it's like, you know, you read a really, you know, a Baroque prose style and you think, wow, it, you know, like 
extended metaphor, that pile up of, you know, descriptive accumulation of details. I mean, that if, if I sat down to do that, it would, it would be a lot of work. So I think it's, you know, no matter how much work it is for me, the fact that I, I do try to be clear and precise and, and, and to have a kind of pared down style, I think that that's one thing that makes it look easy and, ma- and it does make it also easy to follow. It's also, I think, because you are with me, you are following me exactly in my foot, exactly at my side while I'm doing this, because I do do it completely linearly. Right. Don't make the outline and I don't put one section there and then revise that and move things around because I am going step by step. I'm writing something. I have an idea. I have some thoughts. Something happens. Then I have some reflections. And then I move on. So everything does come organically out of what came before. And I think the reader does experience that along with me. And as far as the humor goes, it's not like I ever have beforehand, you know, oh, at some point I'm going to plant a joke what or, or something humorous. What happens is that I'm writing along and then something that happens to be funny occurs to me and I put it in and then I, you know, later I might worry a little bit about it because you know how it is with humor. You always worry that what is funny to you might fall flat to someone else. But then I have, I have my editor, my various mm-hmm. editors, my agent, and they will say that joke doesn't, that just, I didn't even right. get it or whatever. So I feel safe, you mm-hmm. know, to try to do that. And so I guess, you know, in a way it, it reflects my personality. I mean, I think that, you know, people are funny and mm-hmm. life is funny. And I also feel that, you know, the comic is such a, an important part of life. and Speaking of right now with the vulnerables, as you'll recall, this pandemic happened, this incredible crisis, and the lockdown happened. And what's one of the first things that people did? They started filling your feeds and your inbox with some really wonderful jokes. Mm-hmm. And I can I can remember and videos too. Of, you know, just over oh, it was so much a part of the experience that people were coming up with brilliant humor. And the comic has its place. In fact, it has a big place. Yeah. And it has a really big place in the vulnerables, too, because our narrator doesn't quite know how disconnected she is in some ways. And you throw in a college student. You throw in a college student that she is fully unprepared for. She has moved out of her. This is not a spoiler, folks. She's moved out of her apartment. She's given her apartment over to a healthcare worker who's in from Portland to help because we all remember what those early days were like in New York. Vetch. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Vetch. Let's call him Vetch. Okay. (laughs) Vetch. Which is the name of a weed, as you know. Yes. (laughs) We have some fun. And she is not prepared for Vetch or his veganism or his view of the world and everything else. And then we have Eureka the Parrot. And I'm just going to laugh for a second because really we have a college student we have our narrator, and we have a parrot in a very small space. <laughs> it's not that small because it's, I mean, because it is it is somebody's large. What it's there? It's a three bedroom apartment. Yeah. Okay. Really not bad, but still, I mean, it's lockdown, so every, everything is going to feel kind of small. 
Well, I mean, it's certainly not having a Harlequin Great Dane in a studio apartment. No, no. But, <laughs> but still, it's it's exactly, exactly. Three bedrooms doesn't feel quite as big well, as wait, it no, might wait. under and, normal circumstances, right? And one of the bedrooms has been set up for the bird. For the bird. So really, it's really... It's the kind of thing that crazy people do, you know, that crazy people with a lot of money do. Oh, I, I bought into it immediately. He has his own room, absolutely. It's, it's large cage in the room with the drawings of jungle on the walls. Yeah. I bought into it immediately. Well, we've all seen things like that. Right. Yeah. But this is also one of your recent books. And one of the things we're talking about is how people respond to loss, how they respond to stress, how they respond to suffering, right? I mean, it was not a great moment for us collectively as humans as we tried to figure out what was going on and what was going to happen next. And here you are with just enough humor and the right mix of characters and the right mix of story. And I trust you. I trust your narrative voice. I'm like, okay, let's see where this goes. I mean, part of my lizard brain still remembers how unpleasant it was. And part of me is just like, okay, I'm going to let Sigrid tell me where this story is going. So as you're sitting down to figure out where this is going, because again, you don't run off an hour. How much were you able to surprise yourself as you're creating? this world and these people because again you know this narrator's voice you know her from earlier books certainly you've explained sort of the sigrid slash narrator separation let's call it this is all not totally familiar terrain but it's not completely unfamiliar either well i think what surprised me a little bit was in both of the the previous books and in fact in my in my first book to some extent there is a very large focus on other people. In other words, like, you know, and that's also true of my book for Rowena, which is, which is about a, a woman who served uh, as a nurse in the, during the Vietnam War in, in Vietnam. You know, I realize that's something that, that really appeals to me to sort of write about the lives of other people as I see them and as a writer sees them. That's really dominant in, um, what are you going through? Where she keeps running into people who tell her things. She even runs into a cat who tells her his whole life story. But here, because of the limited number of, of, of people that she's encountering, and because of the, the situation, I had to go deeper into her character and her, her, her issues, her problems. And she does unexpectedly get that, well, she gets depressed. I mean, that, but that's what happened right. to people. I mean, this is, this is a book that's, that I feel connects me to everyone who went through this pandemic. She gets depressed. She feels lost. She, she, doesn't, she has writer's block, all these things, things that I actually didn't want to write about. Mm. I didn't want to write about writer's block. Who wants to write about writer's block? Also, uh, she has that uh, that agoraphobia that uh, that struck so many people, which is was an unexpected. I kind of, when I was writing, I resisted. I, I thought, well, no, let's 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 write about Vetch. Let's get those girlfriends back. Let's, you know. But I realized that it it it, it had to be done for the book to have uh, the force I wanted it to have, and for it to connect her to everybody else in that situation. It couldn't just be about about Vetch and what he was going through. Right. 
or the parrot. <laughs> There's a verve and a forward motion to this story. And given how internal it is, that's a very tricky thing to pull off, as you know. If we go back to the friend for just a second, you've said in the past, and you've written different, I mean, you had a different pandemic novel centered on a 13-year-old. You've done The Last of Her Kind, which was the friendship of the two women in college and into, shall we say, you know, 1968 for Rowena. And then there's also Mitts. Oh, Mitts. So, yeah. yeah. Mitts, the marmoset of Bloomsbury, right. okay. which is a book a- about an animal, about more right. than one animal, but which started out its life as a as a children's book. Oh, I was wondering about that. Okay. Yeah. So you've done, I just want to be clear for folks who may not know your back catalog entirely. Yes, I started with Feather on the Breath of God and certainly, you know, The Friend and What Are You Going Through and and The Vulnerable sort of sit on a continuum. You figure out this voice sort of after you write a memoir of your friendship with Susan Sontag, who was a mentor for you, and you studied with Elizabeth Hardwick for your MFA. But writing the memoir, you said, sort of freed you up for this new body of work, The Friend, which then leads to what are you going through? And I'm wondering, that surprised me when I read that, I think is what I'm, I'm saying. Not, like, yeah, I'm, I can't remember what, I, I don't remember what I, what I said. I actually have it here. You told the Paris Review. Yeah, you were talking about the restraint of the memoir and sort of that linear structure. And I was like, well, hadn't you done that? before and maybe it's because it had come after some other novels that were a little more traditional maybe in structure i'm not sure i'm not get, I'm, i can't remember what connection i was trying to make with semper susan the 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 memoir of sontag since you brought up hardwick i mean yeah. it's interesting because there i was a student when elizabeth hardwick was writing sleepless mm-hmm. nights you know you you forget these things but when I think about my first novel and then these three novels, that book was obviously, Sleepless Nights was obviously a huge influence, right? right? You know, and then I've taught it a few times over the years, so I would reread it. Sleepless Nights is autofiction. I mean, right, right. self-invented. But the, also she is somebody who, she talks about other people. She keeps herself in the background to mm-hmm. some extent. And she also uh, references things that she read. So, you know, it's all there. So that's a, that was a very big influence. You know, I still think that, you know, the biggest influence on The Friend and, and what came out of it, these other two books, was my first book. It's just yeah. that I didn't really go, <laughs> into, you know, those roots without, without actually being fully conscious that I was doing that. When I wrote Semper Susan, I felt that, it was very much the same in the same in the same mode as these other mm-hmm. books, except that nothing was allowed to be invented, not one right. tiny thing. So in a way, I feel like it's very similar to those other books. And perhaps it's because I'd written Salvation City, which is not mm-hmm. like those other books. Right. Completely not. And then instead of going on to another novel... I started writing Semper Susan. And so, you know, maybe it was a kind of bridge. And then in between Semper Susan and the friend, I had written this noir um, that I talk about in, in oh, yeah. you, that I that I ended up not not publishing, but put but I have, you know, I did I've used material from it in uh what are you going through? Um, which was always fun 
to stumble across as the narrator is reading mystery novels on her bedstand. Yeah, yes, yes. The, the, the thing is that I knew that I wanted that narrator to have a book in progress that she was mm-hmm. reading that was, the, that was a mystery. And I couldn't use a real book right. because I couldn't just use, you know, use somebody, you know, use somebody else's book and summarize it. So I had to, I had to have a mystery and I just happened to have one that I'd written myself. So I was able to use that. I think I would still read that mystery, by the way, <laughs> even though I know some of how it sorts out. I, I think I would really like to see you do some sort of mystery novel, but you know, we'll see. You have time. I have you, know, you have a plan. Right. And I'm not working on anything right now. So. Yeah. You've mentioned Garth Greenwell, who's terrific. And I know you're a fan of Waikie Wong's work and what, you were her teacher and chemistry actually had started as her thesis in her MFA yeah, program. Yeah, at BU. Which I hadn't made the connection between you and BU and until I was reading this piece. Who else of this sort of recent cluster of young writers is sort of really ringing your bell there's a well sarah manguzo oh yeah she's great she has a new novel coming out maybe this spring sometime late winter or spring um and you know and she's written a lot of nonfiction. Mm-hmm. i think this is her second work of fiction and then there's a a, a recent discovery a british writer named gwendoline riley the New York Review of Books books sent me um, these two pack paperbacks. One is called My Phantoms, and the other one is called First Love. And they're short novels, uh, really very, very wonderful. And there's a, an, another um, writer named Sarah Bohm, B-A-U-M-E, uh, whose most recent book is called Seven Steeples, which is a very unusual book. And I really very much like that. And I've long been a fan of Jenny Erpenbeck, who's still quite, quite young, yep. I believe. So those are just some some names. It's hard, it's hard to keep up. I mean, there's a lot of work out there. I, now, recently, I've actually been reading n- novel. This is not a young person. She's, she's 80 mm-hmm. years old. So the Russian writer uh, Ludmila Ulitskaya. I first heard of her work uh, from a profile that uh, Masha Gessen wrote in the New Yorker. Okay. And I, I think she's written very, 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 very many books. I think there are about eight in uh, available in mm-hmm. English translation. And uh, these are books about pre-Soviet, Soviet, and post-Soviet life. Very, very dense books very good very good books mm-hmm. the i have both of the rileys that you mentioned i am um, have not gotten to them yet but you know <laughs> one of the things about working in books regardless of which side of books you're on things tend to gather sometimes a little more quickly than we were planning and uh they pile up i am looking forward to getting to the rileys but we need to get through the rest of this season of the show and then i can do Lots of things like that. And you were on staff at the New York Review of Books, right? I know I read the Garth Greenwald yes. in the New York Review. I was on staff there uh, in my youth. I graduated from Barnard. It was 1972, and I was working elsewhere. I think I would work briefly at Putnam and maybe some publishing house as an editorial assistant. And then I stopped by Elizabeth Hardwick's office, and I told her I wasn't happy where I was working. And she said, well, you know, maybe maybe Bob Silver's at the New York Review. You know, he's always looking for editorial assistance because there's such a great turnover there. 
So I worked there right out of school. Well, I'd have been working elsewhere. So, so, Mm -hmm. so a few, a few months, because then I went back to school to get my MFA at Columbia. And then once I left Columbia, maybe I was a year out or so, I went back and worked there for about another year. It was a strictly clerical job. Right. But as I point out sometimes, the the office that Robert Silvers worked in was a large mm-hmm. room. Both of his assistants were right there in the same room. He wasn't even in a private office, and we didn't have a private office. So everything that he did, you know, talking to all mm-hmm. these, you know, extraordinary writers, either them coming by to work with him right mm-hmm. there by his desk or him talking on the phone or, you know, whatever. It was all it was all right there. And in addition to that, we uh, we got all the mail. We were supposed to open it. We were supposed to read it. So, you know, it was a kind of extraordinary education in the contemporary literary mm-hmm. scene. It was a good place to have spent some time. And we do, we didn't enjoy it. We did not enjoy it. It was a, it was a difficult job and it was a a lowly job and all that, but you know, but I, I I did end up feeling grateful for it indeed. I know I mentioned this earlier in the show, but part of the fun of reading you though is when you slide in these lines from writers and you know, sort of knowing that you had come out of the New York Review, even though it was quite some time ago. It's a treat to see you connect all of these dots to whatever you're doing in the present moment. But also you've always been very clear that writing was the thing for you. And in fact, you've said things like, well, you know, if you quit dance, you quit dance, but you can't really quit writing because you just can't quit writing. And so you've been teaching for quite some time as well, but really it has always been about the words and the work and the books and the essays. It it, it, it has. It has. Yes. It's such a wide body of work. I can see sort of the through lines of your interests and I can see the big ideas that are sort of driving all of the work. But is there something you haven't done yet that you really do? I mean, Salvation City, you've got the first, I think that's the first time you have a child narrator, correct? He's not the narrator. He's the protagonist. But yes, a young and male, the only male. Right. Okay. I can't remember exactly how old he is in that. What is he, 10 or something? I, yeah, he's, he's a little young. bit older. Yeah, that is the only time I had a young person. Yeah. So, I mean, is there an idea like that cooking somewhere in a notebook? Not exactly, but I, I, do, I do think now time has passed and I'm mm-hmm. older. And I do have these regrets, which I didn't have when I was much younger, about all kinds of writing that I'm not going to have time to do. Like I did, you know, I did want to write that noir. Sure, I have a fantasy about, well, how about if I had had time in life to write something entirely different from these kinds of books, like these intimate books that are, you know, partly autobiographical, like, for example, a historical novel, a mystery novel, children's books, try a completely different style. I mean, you know, I I adored Virginia Woolf. I adored right. Bokoff. Well, those styles, you know, I mean, just that, trying to experiment with writing something mm-hmm. in that kind of more, you know, more developed style, more elaborate style, because I do love sentences. 
there's not going to be time to do that. And it's not going to be true to me at this age either. It's not, not time to play. It's just not. It's just not. It, 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 I, I can sense that. I don't know what I'm going to write next, but I'm not going to, you know, try my hand at a historical novel. It's just, it's just not going to happen. So that, yes, that's a, that's a real regret. You know, it started a, a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, when I realized that I that there are so many things you could write. Like, for example, I started writing this literary criticism not that long ago. I kind of regret that I hadn't done more of that, uh, more nonfiction, more memoir, even. You know, all, like just so many things that a, a biography of someone, all these things that maybe way, way back, I you know, I could have thought. But, you, you know, you don't have the time to do all that. You just don't. You don't consider the last of her kind historical? Um, I would yeah, I do, I do, but I meant something, you know, you know, something like maybe that it took place in a different century. Oh, now. got it. So more along the lines of like the fraud Zadie Smith's new novel, The Fraud, that kind of Yes, exactly. Of, that's okay. exactly that's what I'm talking about. That's the way that you know, when when you've read when you read her writing about how that came to be and it yeah. was always cooking there. Yes, exactly. Something okay. to keep you know, because I share with her this this thing about Dickens, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and so my you know like yes, I I would have loved to try to write a Dickensian kind of novel. That was one of my great loves that kind of book. Yeah, every now and again, someone will say, "Well, you know, this is 1965. It's technically historical," and you know, my eyes get big. My eyes get really big though when someone says, "Well, it's set in the 80s. It is technically historical." <laughs> Wait a minute, this was. Not that long ago. No, no, no. For some of us, I'm not prepared to call that historical fiction. That's interesting because I remember at some point I read a rule about that. Don't ask Mm -hmm. me what rule it was, but they said in order for a book to be called historical, it has to be taken place. And I forget what the cutoff was, but even 68 did not make that cutoff at that time. It's not, it's not, it's a novel set in the past, but it's not what we call historical novel. Now, I've heard anywhere from 30 years, which is technically a generation, to 50. We're just 50 creeping feels up. feels more right to me. Yeah, 50 does. But it, it's creeping up in ways where I'm kind of like, hey, wait a minute. You know, I'm I'm on the cusp of people who grew up with technology and not technology. Like my brother yes. and I used to fight over who got the phone, that kind of thing, because my parents felt like there's one phone, it's in the kitchen, you can share it. So it's a totally, totally different way of looking at the world. Do you think you're coming back? To our narrator, do you think we're getting another book at some point? I realize you just said, well, I don't know what I'm doing next, but something tells me that you really like dipping back into that particular voice. I do, I do, but there's a problem now. And the oh, problem no. is, and I didn't, again, I didn't plan this, but what mm-hmm. I discovered was that these three books, The Friend, What Are You Going Through, and now The Vulnerables, do make a kind of loose trilogy. They do. They very right? much do, yes. And and that was co- totally not planned and all. And it 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 kind of it, it's interesting because when when what are you going through came out, uh, there couldn't be any in person events, but I did several online events, and mm-hmm. one of the people I had a conversation with was Curtis Sittenfeld, and she had read the friend, she had read what are you going through, and she said, well, you know, it it does seem like these two books are in conversation with each mm-hmm. other, and then she said, could you imagine writing a th- a third? I had not yet started writing The Vulnerables, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I didn't think of it that way. But pretty soon I realized that that is the way it, it was. Like those two books were crying out for a concluding volume. And now I've done it. 
I can't imagine, you know, there can't be a fourth, you know, there, right. there has to, there's something else has to happen. And I'm not mm -hmm. sure what that would be. So, so if the new thing I worked on, if it was a new book, if it had, I mean, I imagine it would have the same sensibility, the same, mm -hmm. the same tone and the same concerns, but I need something, I need something else. I, mm -hmm. I do not want to just you know, go on as if you would turn the page of the vulnerables and here and it went right. on. I feel like there's a lot churning in the back of your brain, even though you and I are meeting over the screen. And um, I think there's quite a lot happening. Before I let you go, I do, I don't want people to think that we're talking about your debut, A Feather on the Breath of God, as you know, this start of this four book series. That's not that's not the conversation no. you and I are having. But to see the evolution of your voice across these books and to hear you say, well, it really wasn't the plan. It's kind of great. It just reminds me why we do this thing, right? Yeah. Why why you write, why you tell these stories, why you mentor these young people and teach writing the way you do, that we have a chance to watch things change on the page. And I think that's kind of great. I so appreciate your work. I just really needed to tell you that. Thank you I so much. I so appreciate these novels. So Sigrid Nunez, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. The Vulnerables is out now. Certainly The Friend is available. And what are you going through? And even A Feather on the Breath of God and certainly the Marmot novel. But start with those four. Thanks so much, Sigrid. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.